Bibles this morning, please turn to Jonah chapter 1. In the front of your Bible, there is a magical place called the Table of Contents. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid to use it. Jonah is probably a book that you haven't turned to recently. It is found in the Old Testament. And in my Bible, it's on page 1,258. Does that help anybody? No, that's not probably not helpful at all. Listen to this amazing account in the life of a man named Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their wickedness has confronted me. However, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish or Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. We're going to be reading the entire chapter of Jonah chapter 1 this week by way of introduction, just a, a short two-week series entitled Jonah, A Special Kind of Stubborn. And now that you've met Jonah, you can see that he is a special kind of stubborn. If there's one thing that you're hoping to find this morning coming to church, it was probably to hear from the Lord. Sometimes we hear from the Lord when we just have our hand shook when we walk in. Sometimes we hear from the Lord when we're talking to a friend or making a new friend over a cup of coffee. Sometimes we hear from the Lord during our times of corporate prayer, during a church service. Sometimes we hear from the Lord during the worship service as we sing his words back to him. Sometimes we hear from the Lord when it's spoken and proclaimed and preached. But I think all of us would say, whether you are a, a Jesus follower or not, the reason you're here this morning is you're hoping to hear from the divine. You're hoping to hear from God. And Jonah, well, he heard, and we see clearly what he did. The first thing the text says is that God clearly gives Jonah his word. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh. Another way of translating that phrase, great city of Nineveh, not only was it a large city for its time, not only was it recognized as a capital in the Assyrian Empire right around 850 BC, about 850 years before Jesus was born, not only was it great in that way, the phrase can also be translated, it was great to the Lord. It was important to God. That God shared something with Jonah that was important to him. That regardless of what Jonah felt about Nineveh, whether it was a great city in numbers, a great city in influence, a great city that was a capital, or just a great city because God thought it was a great city, it didn't matter what Jonah thought, it was a great city to God. And then the text clearly records that he fled that he literally went the opposite direction. Nineveh was about 500 miles to the east, and Jonah was heading about 2,000 miles to the west. Biblical scholars aren't entirely confident with the what we would call modern-day Tarshish or Tarshish, but the consensus seems to be that it's in Spain. <laughs> and you may not know a whole lot about world geography, but Spain ain't Syria. <laughs> and, and Jonah was supposed to go to Syria, basically, about 500 miles to the east of Joppa, north of Jerusalem, and he got on a ship whose final destination was 2,000 miles to the west on the southern shore of Spain. It was a city important to God, a city that was great to God. Why, why didn't, <laughs> instead of running away, instead of going the wrong direction, 
you might be wondering, why didn't Jonah just stay home? And the text says that he fled from the Lord's presence. Now, we know that's silly because how can you flee from a God who is present everywhere on the planet? The, the theological word for that is omnipresent, all present. So you can't, it doesn't matter where you go, you can't flee from God. Even if you leave the planet, you can't flee from God's presence. So what, why didn't Jonah just stay home? Why did he feel that he had to go the opposite direction? My best understanding of Jonah and his stubbornness is that he just really wanted to communicate something to God, clearly. Not just with his words, but also with his actions. And what he wanted to communicate to God was no. <laughs> a complete rejection of God's word. A complete rejection of God's message. I don't care how great Nineveh is to you. I don't care how many people live there. It doesn't matter to me. I completely know I'm using my words and my legs, and I'm going the opposite way. Probably, It's probably been a couple of weeks since this happened, but if you have a child in the public school system, you probably received the final report card for the year a couple of weeks ago or so. And, of course, in that report card, there's a lot of information. There's uh, marking period one, marking period two, semester one. Maybe there's exam grades in there from the first semester. Then there's marking period three, marking period four, semester two grades, and maybe there's exam grades in there. And then there's a final grade that says how your child performed in school over the last year. And we know that those grades are important. And you might have had a conversation with your child, you know, why did you get a certain this grade, you know, in this class when we know first semester you, you did this, and then second semester you kind of you kind of tailed off, like, what's that all about? And then your child starts to tell you things like this. Well, you know, there were a couple of homework assignments that the teacher wasn't particularly clear on. They kind of made it sound like it was optional. But as the end of the semester rolled in, come to find out those zeros weren't really optional. And that kind of really hurt my grade. They start telling you a story. And you know that there's your child's version of the story. And then there's their instructor's version of the story. And so you take the grades with a grain of salt. You look at the A's and the A pluses and you wonder, did you just have to have a pulse in that class or did you actually do something? Like, you're not really sure that an A plus means that your child is amazing, but you're not really sure that the C or the D in another class means that your child is terrible either. The material might have just been difficult or possibly the instructions weren't clear or they did go for extra help, but it wasn't helpful. So the grades tell a story, but we all understand that there's wiggle room in there. You know where there's no wiggle room? The comments. That's right. If you're curious about that A or you're curious about that C, you're wondering if your kid's a high flyer or a slacker, you go to the comments. Why? Because that's where the teacher just says what it is, a pleasure to have in class. They don't say that unless they mean it. And the comments at the end of the year are the best comments because their child, that your child is gone. That you, you know that you're probably not going to schedule a parent-teacher conference in July. And if you did, the teacher says, sorry, we're talking about past history, deal with it. And so you're looking at those comments because those comments, that's the word of the teacher. That's their clearly expressed will. Does a good job when they try, but could put more effort into class. Has a difficult time paying attention. And we look at those comments because we understand the true will of the teacher in those comments. So we can reject the grades. Everybody understands that there's some wiggle room in the grades. We, we can, we can kind of let the grades be what the grades are. But when we come to the comment section, 
We accept what the comments have to say because we understand that that is the clear indication of the teacher's will. And as parents, we would never consider rejecting the comments of the teacher. We might consider rejecting their grades for mitigating circumstances, but we would never reject the actual thoughts of the teacher that they took the time to write down on that report card. And yet we find Jonah, the one thing that we all came here this morning hoping to hear, the word of the Lord, complete rejection. 500 miles to the right, nah, how about 2,000 miles to the left? And even as we would never reject the teacher's comments on a report card, so Jonah should have never completely rejected the word of the Lord. But that's probably why he didn't stay home. In every possible way, he wanted to completely reject what God had told him. Some prophet, huh? Like, why on earth would God use this guy if that's what he's going to do with the precious and holy word of God? Let's continue through the text. Then the Lord, I'm in verse 4, then the Lord hurled a violent wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid and each cried out to his God. They, then they threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. As we work our way through the book of Jonah this week and next, we're going to notice, you could almost call it an, an outline. There's the clear word of the Lord given to Jonah. Jonah then responds to the word of the Lord one way or another. And then Jonah encounters a completely godless people who are more responsive to God's word than he is. And then Jonah and God have a conversation about it. This happens twice in the book of Jonah. This is the first time. So Jonah cl clearly heard from the Lord. He absolutely rejected God's message. And then he comes across these sailors who know nothing about the Lord God, the creator of the heaven and the earth, yet they're dealing with this difficult situation and we see in verse 5 what you could say is a perfectly repentant response. Now, of course, they're not repenting to God. They don't even know who he is. But it says that the sailors were afraid. They internalized the desperateness of their situation. They were scared. In fact, in Jonah chapter 1, we're going to see that three times the text records that these sailors were afraid. This is the first time. And then they, they did something. They internalized this this fear and they did something about it they cried out to their god they began praying they did the right thing you know a person far from god in a difficult situation would do well to learn from these these sailors that don't know god at all they were afraid they took them seriously they began to pray to their god and then they took action they started hucking the cargo into the sea in the hopes that the ship would ride above the waves they they processed this difficult situation inwardly, then they articulated it, and then they acted on it. It's, it's a great model for repentance. And, and we're going to see later in the text that another people does the same thing. And it's like the author of Jonah is having some fun with us by introducing the word of the Lord, God's man who does a terrible thing, and then the pagans are like the, the pillars of righteousness. They actually know what to do when a difficult situation comes along. But such is their dire strait. Continuing in verse 6, Then the captain approached him, went down in the hold and woke him up and said, What are you doing sound asleep? Here's the man of God. 
get up, call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Verse 7, come on, the sailors said to each other, let's cast lots. Let's draw straws. Let's roll the dice. Let's use a random process over which we have no control whatsoever in the hopes that the divine will intercede in the, in the casting of the dice and will indicate to us who the sinner is, right? So they cast lots, and the lot singled out Jonah. However they rolled those dice, they must have assigned a number to each person on the ship, and Jonah's number got rolled. And they felt that it was the, the, the divine, that the gods had controlled the throwing of the dice. Then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business and where are you from? What is your country and what people are you from? And he answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Wait for it. Fear number two. Here we go. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, what is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you to calm this sea that's against us? How can we do something to you to make this go away? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, of all the things he could say, pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it might quiet down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this whole violent storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. Now they're in a pickle. So they called out to the Lord, please, Yahweh, don't let us perish because of this man's life. And don't charge us with innocent blood. Don't kill us because you want to kill this joker. His number came up. And when his number came up, he made a clear confession. And he said, it's me. I am running from my God. And by the way, he created the heavens and the earth, the ocean, and the dry land. So you, you want to kill your guy? Fine. Kill him. But don't kill us. Our numbers didn't come up. And Yahweh, don't make us murderers. We don't want to kill him. Apparently you do problem for the sailors they probably weren't in the habit of murdering their passengers for you Yahweh have done just as you please don't charge us with innocent blood verse 18 uh, 16 rather then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging Soldiers or sailors are afraid part 3 ready the men feared the Lord even more. Holy cow, it works. Like we didn't just murder a man needlessly. Like God really wanted this guy dead. Then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. Because that's, that's how you worship the Lord. You, 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 make, you offer yourself, and you make, you make promises. Not much has changed. Now, the Lord had appointed a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights. 
we took a look at why Jonah just didn't stay home, and it's because he wanted to clearly communicate to the Lord with his words and his actions, no. We took a look at the sailor's response to this terrible situation. It felt like divine wrath. It felt like divine punishment. These guys were sailors. This wasn't their first storm. But there was something about this storm that made them fear. And so they began to pray, and they began to lighten the cargo on the ship. We saw that they were perfectly repentant. They were as repentant as they could be. And then we see, why didn't Jonah just repent on the ship? Like, why didn't he just drop to his knees and say, boys, you know what? It's me. I'm a bad person. Um, You know, why couldn't he just handle business with God right on the ship? And the text doesn't clearly say a couple of thoughts might be maybe he was feeling remorse for his actions because he did clearly reject the word of the Lord. And maybe something about the sailors' humility to God and willingness to serve him, even though they didn't know God, made him feel remorseful. That I brought trouble into these guys' lives. Like they didn't intend to murder one of their passengers today, but here's the deal. You know, this is a bad situation for these guys. So maybe he felt remorseful, and that's why he didn't just repent on the ship. Maybe he felt that it was too late. Like, you know, it's very convenient for me now that there's a storm and and like, you know, the die has been cast and they threw the die and my number came up. And, you know, repenting now would be meaningless because I should have repented before. But now that now that we're down to the end of it, and it looks like everybody is going to die. There's not really any point in me repenting or asking for God's forgiveness because the situation has gone too far. It's gone too far. And so it doesn't make any sense for me to repent now. We, we don't know why Jonah persisted in his stubbornness, was obstinate in his stubbornness. He could have stayed home. He didn't have to get on the ship, and he could have repented at any time, but he didn't. Just a couple of ideas or a couple of thoughts about maybe why he never repented. But I think one point of of application from the text or maybe something for us to think about as we move into Jonah's time in the belly of the great fish is the thought that there is a jeopardy of doing anything other than repentance, at least for Jonah, when he's fleeing from the Lord. If you think about it, everything he's doing, heading the wrong direction, is perilous, not just for him, but for everybody with whom he is associated. He is literally western bound trying to cover a a distance that is four times greater than the distance he was supposed to be going east, but he wasn't doing it. And every foot he goes to the west, it gets more and more and more perilous for those that he's with, his companions, because they're, they're traveling on this journey together. And so I think there's something to be said about the jeopardy as a people of faith of doing anything other than repent when we know that we know that we know that we are rejecting the clear word of the Lord. We've seen this illustrated in just about any relationship you can possibly imagine. Let's think about work for a second. And sometimes it's confusing to think about work when we take a look at the biblical text because work was talked about differently in the first century church, specifically in the New Testament, because it's more of like a master and a slave relationship. And sometimes we have a hard time understanding that probably the best context for that today is understanding our our actions 
in the workplace, one of the, the highest performing airlines are JetBlue and Southwest. Like, they're always at the top of the performance. One of the reasons for that, from my understanding anyways, is one, they're a non-union airline. The employees just do a full day's work and they feel that the company actually takes half a week in care of them, so the union is off the property. We all know how wonderful unions can be. They provide pensions, they provide benefits, they provide salaries, they provide job security. But we also know that they it comes at a price. And that price goes to the union. It doesn't go back into the company and it doesn't go into the employees' pockets. Southwest and JetBlue are the only two airlines that are non-union. So there's a halfway decent relationship between the labor force and the, the management. The other thing about JetBlue and Southwest is there is a program in place at both of those airlines that when the bags are on time and the flight leaves on time and the flight arrives on time and things go the way they're supposed to go, there's an incentive program that the employees get paid for on-time departures, on-time arrivals, and not losing a bag. JetBlue and Southwest, to the best of my knowledge, are the only airlines that do that. They work together there. And so if you are an employee at JetBlue and you're working the ramp and you see a bag that's clearly marked uh, Kennedy to uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and the bag is supposed to be going to the left, and you take the bag and you huck it to the right, there's going to be some pushback there. There is a culture that is trying to help you repent. Hey, Timmy, that bag's marked for Phoenix, Sky Harbor. You just hucked it to Bermuda. Knock it off. Go grab that bag and put it on the Sky Harbor Phoenix flight for crying out loud. It's going to take money out of all of our pockets if you don't repent. Turn that bag around. So it's, that's a simple example from from the workplace where there is jeopardy of doing anything other than acting repentantly. That we all know that we're supposed to conduct our affairs at work in a certain way and show up at a certain time and do certain things and leave at a certain time. And if we don't do that, then we know that we jeopardize not just our own position in the company, but also possibly the overall productivity and profitability of our workplace. I could go on and on and on about this point, but it's a minor point in the text. And so I don't want to linger here any longer. I want to move on to the major point that we're going to get to here in just a moment this morning. But the jeopardy of doing anything other than repentance, persisting in a path that is wandering away from God has consequences that include those that are with you, that are also journeying through life with you as well. So repent, repent soon, and minimize the consequences of our sinful behavior. We understand that. We get that. But it's a minor point here in the text. So in the eyes of God, we have this guy now who just got thrown overboard, and he's perfectly disobedient. He is now suffering the consequences for his behavior. In the eyes of everyone on the planet, in the eyes of people, this guy is now dead. We just threw him overboard in a storm. He just drowned. He just died. And so if there is a person on the planet at this point in the narrative, right between Jonah chapter 1 and Jonah chapter 2, that nobody cares about anymore, including God, it's Jonah. Because depending who you are, he's either dead, or if you're God, he's disobedient. But here is the, the account of the thoughts that Jonah has, the poetry that he writes, the song that he composes, 
while he is inside this fish. Let's hear what he learns. This is the words of Jonah now. I call to the Lord in my distress. I do not have these words on the, t- on the screen, so you can follow along in your Bibles or you can just listen. It's, it's a song. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help in the belly of Sheol, which is a biblical word for the bad place. You heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas. Mm, you kind of threw yourself there, Joker. You're the one that was disobedient. You're, it's in the Bible, but Jonah's saying it, so we can think about it, right? We can think about his thoughts here. God didn't huck him in the ocean. Jonah did. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. Basically, he's saying, I'm in a really low place, and I can prove it because I'm in a fish. Underwater, down deep. (laughs) Jonah's in a literal, deep, dark, fishy place. But I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. If he has any idea where the temple in Jerusalem is, if he's swimming around in the belly of a fish in the Mediterranean Ocean somewhere, of course not. This is a decision of faith, right? In his heart, he is now turning his attention towards the things of God. Uh, And good for him. What else is he going to do? You know, there's no internet down there, so... The waters engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Like, there are some blues songs, right? Where it sounds like the artist is in the basement digging holes. Like he's just so low. Everybody's left him. Everything's bad. The dog, the wife, the truck broke. He got fired on the job. There's no cold beer in the fridge. I mean, he's in a bad place, right? This is where this is where Jonah is. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth with its prison bars closed behind me forever. For all he knows, he's going to die here. You know, he, he's doing okay now. But man, to, to say that he's in a tenuous position, we can't even fathom, you know, minute by minute. He thinks that his life could be over. But you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered Yahweh. My prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forsake faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation is from the Lord. Here's the big idea, and it's kind of uh, a massive theme in the book. And I've entitled the sermon series, A Special Kind of Stubborn. And we've been focusing on Jonah and his stubbornness. But the even larger theme of this book is the stubbornness of God. Think about it. God gives his word to Jonah. Jonah utterly and completely rejects it. God does not reject Jonah. Jonah wants to be rejected by God, but God won't give up on him. Follows him out, torments him, has him thrown in the water, has him sucked up by a great fish. He brought the storm, 
sure, Jonah is, is, is a model of being stubborn, but if you think about it, God is being way more stubborn than Jonah in persistently following him time after again with mercy. And according to the verse that I do have on the screen, those who cling to worthless idols forsake faithful love. Another way of communicating that idea of faithful love is those who cling to worthless idols forsake stubborn love. God's stubborn love for Jonah is the big idea of the first two chapters. This book is only 48 verses long. It's only 48 verses long. And yet you could say that even though we've only covered about 24 verses, that there's no other 24 verses in the Bible that present a clear picture of the stubborn love that God has for someone who richly did not deserve it. The comments on his report card and the grades on his report card were terrible. He did not deserve to continue his education. He did not deserve to continue his mission. He especially did not deserve to be known as the man of God by God. And yet, God persisted and did not forsake Jonah, but rather extended stubborn love, faithful love. Love that just simply would not quit. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back on up this morning and help me conclude our time together this morning. Here's our concluding thought. What did Jonah learn in the belly of this big fish that changed his response? Because we're going to see that he takes a different direction in Jonah chapter 2. Because... Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, one of the most powerful verses in the Bible, one of my favorite verses, and I hope a verse that you could just commit to memory this morning. It's so powerful. Listen to this. Uh, The conclusion of chapter 2, then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Chapter 3, verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, as stubborn as Jonah was stubborn as Jonah was, God was even more stubborn and extended the power of his word to Jonah again. So here's our application this morning. I think think maybe there are some of us here that would benefit by praying fishy prayers. A fishy prayer that says, I'm in a low spot. It feels like I'm at the bottom of the earth. It feels like there's no hope. It feels like I'm in a situation right now that could overcome me at any moment. The waters are up to my neck. I don't have a clear way forward. I don't know the way to move forward. I have a hard time seeing the hand in front of my face. I have no guidance. I have no sense from the Lord whatsoever of where I'm supposed to be right now. And maybe it's because of disobedience. Maybe it's just because where the Lord has you is kind of testing right now. Pray a fishy prayer that goes something like this. Lord, you love me some of you, uh, you might be wondering what, what would be the Lord's will for me this morning. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ by faith, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you do not consider yourself a follower of Jesus, that's God's will for you, that you would pray a fishy prayer. And Lord, I can see now that you have loved me stubbornly my entire life, and you brought me to this place, and I've heard your word in one way or another, and it's time for me to pray a fishy prayer. 
No more darkness for me. No more seaweed wrapped around my head. No more not knowing what your will is or your guidance is for my life. It's time to make a change. I place my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not going to go in a sinful direction anymore. I'm going to go in a righteous direction to the best of my ability as your word guides me. I place my faith for the forgiveness of my sins and the empowerment of my repentant lifestyle, which I'm going to start right now. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Love me stubbornly. Send your word again. Here's another fishy prayer. Some of you guys have been Christians for 400 years. And you know I'm being real goofy. But you're involved in ministry. And you, and you know, in River Church, is kind of interesting in that we started from nothing just two and a half years ago or so, and there's a lot of energy, a lot of excitement. Are we going to survive? Will the doors of the school be unlocked? Will the instruments work the way they're supposed to? There's a lot of excitement with the perilous nature of starting something new. But now that it's been up and running for a few years, and you've been volunteering regularly, you've been ministering faithfully, or maybe you're in a relationship that is just taking a lot of emotional energy right now, and you've been faithful and faithful and faithful and faithful and faithful, and you're feeling a little stretched thin. You're feeling a little fishy. Please understand that the Lord sent the great fish as a place of comfort and respite and reflection for Jonah. The option was death. And so the fact that he wasn't killed and got swallowed by a fish, obviously we think, ugh. But he was alive. Some of us who are involved in ministry, you, you feel this viscerally. And I want to encourage you this morning. You feel like you're the fish. And, and, and people who are in various kinds of distress, different ministry situations that are difficult, or maybe they're not as exciting as they used to be, you are in a place where you are providing respite for those who are getting hucked overboard in life. <laughs> for those who don't have any direction whatsoever, and you find yourself surrounded by more need and more need and more need and more need. Pray a fishy prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your stubborn love. And maybe if I'm just a, a smelly fish that can provide a place of respite for a guy that just needs a few quiet moments, would you strengthen me to do that well? My position in ministry, it's not as exciting as it was. You know, my, my relationship with so-and-so, it's not as exciting as it was. And, and you're not in need of salvation this morning. That happened a long time ago. You're in need of refreshing. You're in need of hearing the word of the Lord again. And I don't know if anyone has ever really brought to your attention that the fish played an important role as a, I don't know, kind of a pastor, kind of a safe place. Better a terrible pastor, a smelly fish of a pastor, than no pastor at all, right? And, the, and you might be thinking this morning, you know what? I may not feel that I'm the greatest minister or the greatest servant of Jesus that ever walked the earth, but you're trying. You're serving. You're available. You are changing people's lives. You're creating an environment where people are making life-changing decisions. Well done. Pray a fishy prayer. Send me in the right direction. Help me find someone that might need a word of encouragement. Rejuvenate me as you do. I need to hear your word again. So I hope that's an encouragement to you this morning. Next week, we're going to follow the adventures of Jonah to the conclusion. I, if, if for nothing else, read through the book of Jonah. The guy is such a chucklehead. It should be an encouragement to you if you're not familiar with his story. 48 verses. We'll cover about 24 today. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this group of people who came here this morning to hear your word. And Father, I pray that they do. 
whether it be in the words that they share with each other or the prayers that are prayed in this place or the prayers that need to be prayed here in just a few moments because there's opportunity or a word of worship or from the power of your word. Father, we pray that your people heard from you clearly this morning. Father, I pray that we would be renewed of our conviction of your stubborn love for your people. We ask these things in Jesus' name.